This episode sponsored by the Lodge Management Group. Wings and beer, almost as good as podcasts. That's why Chicago's Summer Wing Fest wants to give listeners a free t-shirt when they buy tickets with offer code PODCAST. Available at wingfest.net. I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. Tis the business of little minds to shrink, but he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. Thomas Paine Many factors contributed to an upstart confederation of colonies in America rebelling against their mother country, Great Britain. Among these were strict trade laws, most of which were not rigidly enforced at first, crown-appointed governors whom the colonists came to despise, and the fact that they were obviously Englishmen who just wanted to be treated like damned Englishmen and weren't. Enjoying about as many rights as a red-headed stepchild, the colonists' disdain for British government finally boiled over when they were taxed to pay for the French and Indian War between 1757 and 1763. Now that's amazing, because I would have thought that that war would be between the French and the Indians. You'd be wrong, sir. <laughs> the cost to expel the French from encroaching on the colonies had ballooned the British national debt from 72.3 million pounds to 129.6 million, which is equivalent to around 16.5 billion pounds today. And London politicians had decided to levy taxation without anyone to represent a voice for the colonies in Parliament. A colonist cannot make a button, a horseshoe, or a hobnail, and some snootly ironmonger or respectable button maker of England shall bawl and squall that he is most egregiously maltreated, injured, cheated, and robbed by the rascally American Republicans. Boston Gazette, 1765. The New Englanders, by their canting, whining, and insinuating tricks, have persuaded the rest of the colonies that the government is going to make absolute slaves of them. (laughs) Nicholas Cresswell. Protests, public demonstrations, boycotts, violence, and threats of violence began to spread throughout the colonies. The Crown responded in about the dumbest way possible, levying more taxes and sending troops to quell the rabble. Skirmishes between the colonists and soldiers became more and more common. Twice, colonists dumped shipments of tea into Boston Harbor, costing the English East India Company a small fortune. More tollish laws were passed, and inevitably the pissing contest led to unruly violence. By 1775, tensions boiled over into war. Colonists who wanted independence from British rule called themselves patriots. Those who supported British authority were called loyalists, or Tories. In June 1775, British forces laid siege to Boston, marching on the Patriots' last fortifications at Breed's Hill and nearby Bunker Hill. The Americans gave them hell until their ammo ran out and they were forced to retreat to Cambridge, but the losses suffered by the British gave the colonies a victory of confidence in themselves. Who but Americans could lose and still consider the day won? Death in war is like a t-shirt on a husky kid in a pool. You'll never see one without the other. 
As the casualties mounted, the survivors had to deal with the aftermath. Unfortunately, many times this meant burying the dead. Such was the case in Boston after Bunker Hill, when dozens of British troops were buried in unmarked graves in Boston Common and spots nearby. With so much violent loss of life and unceremonious places of eternal rest, tales of otherworldly phenomenon have become all too Boston Common. Faint sounds of musket fire, shouts of battle, and transparent soldiers have been reported in and around Bunker Hill. Ironically, ghosts of patriots who fought for liberty are confined to wander the monuments and replay their final moments along the Freedom Trail. Yeah, everybody thought the British were going to come in here and just totally kick the colonists' asses, but we totally showed those tea-drinking candy asses what f***ing for. You're so f***ing right, Tommy. Tommy Flanagan and Lynn Deckner of the Dorchester Historical Preservation Society. You see, at the time, Britain had the most powerful military on the planet, and their superiority was considered a given. So by holding out against them and inflicting far more severe losses than anticipated, the colonists were able to win a moral victory of sorts, despite the fact that eventually they had to retreat to Cambridge. I mean, come on, it's like everybody knows that the British had just sailed up the back of the harbor and come up the hill from the back then the colonists would have taken it up the f***ing ass, literally. What are you, retarded, Tommy? The colonial military was just as adaptable as the British. They would have seen the line of British advance and adjusted their tactics accordingly. What the f*** are you talking about, Lynn? What the f*** are you talking on about? Wheels. You just turn it. Yeah, you everybody just turn turns, but you're saying, no, the British come this way, we'll keep looking over here, we'll look over everybody's here. Everybody's pointing towards the You know the what the f*** you're yeah, talking about. F*** you. Yeah, he's a good guy. He's a good guy. I like, I like Lynn. Say hi to your mother for me. The Stairs of Hammock House. As in most wars, families, friends, and lovers were ripped apart by the revolution. Although not necessarily considered a civil war, neighbors and even kinfolk found each other in heated battles of words and sometimes weapons, as one family supported the cause of independence and another were loyal to the crown. It's estimated that 20 to 30 percent of colonists opposed the revolution. In fact, by 1779, there were more Americans fighting with the British than with the Patriots. Even the distress of community infighting paled in comparison to the woe of wives losing husbands or the betrothed never having the chance to wed. Such was the case for the beautiful Samantha Ashley and her fiancé, Madison Brothers, a ship captain admired for his skill, work ethic, and ambition. Captain Brothers commanded a ship in the waters off North Carolina's Cape Lookout, and while he wasn't exactly involved in fighting the British, he wasn't helping them either. As famous as his good seamanship was, <laughs> his bad habits were equally so. Hard drinking, a short temper, and fits of rage earned him the nickname Mad Brothers. Some of his drinking and fighting transpired at a large, sturdy lodge in Beaufort, North Carolina, called the Hammock House. A popular spot for officers and the like to socialize and carouse, Hammock House was chosen to be the place where Captain Brothers and Samantha would be wed once he returned from a short voyage. Samantha made the trip to Beaufort and anxiously awaited Captain Brothers' return. Unfortunately, the captain experienced a fair share of bad luck at sea. His first mate fell ill, storms pummeled the ship, and his masts were damaged to the point of severely hindering the ship's sailing capabilities. As the days passed, Samantha was happy to learn that her brother Carruthers... Jesus... Like Carruthers Brothers. Yeah. Her brother Carruthers, <laughs> a lieutenant in the British Navy, had made port in Beaufort, and she spent the next couple of days catching up with him. On an evening soon after, 
Captain Brothers' ship limped into port, and the already frustrated captain made his way to Hammock House. As he approached, he was dismayed to see such merriment coming from within. Who's having fun in this place I haven't been in yet? <laughs> his ire rising, he burst through the door just in time to see Carruthers give a goodnight kiss on the cheek to, of his sister. Betrayed! The enraged captain shouted, quieting the party within. Beyond all reason, he drew his sword and rushed through the crowd towards Carruthers. Some in the crowd tried to explain the misunderstanding, but Carruthers, unaware that this charging man was his sister's fiancé, drew his sword and barely managed a parry of the thrusting sword. The men fought for a few seconds until Carruthers was backed up a set of stairs, slipped, and Captain Brothers plunged his sword into the lieutenant's chest. Samantha screamed and ran from the house into the night as her brother lay dying on the stairs, blood pouring from his wound. Some say the captain later found out the terrible misunderstanding. Some say he never did. But either way, he never saw Samantha again. And if you visit the still-standing historical landmark today, be careful if it's a particularly humid or foggy day, for on those occasions, deep red stains appear where Carruthers died, and no amount of scrubbing has ever been able to clean the stairs of Hammock House. He did find out unless he managed to disappear into the night. The captain found out what happened. He was aware that he killed her brother. Betrayed! I, I want to enter more rooms with that. Betrayed! <laughs> hi, Dave. Oh, hi, guys. <laughs> hi, how many for dinner tonight? Betrayed! <laughs> yeah. What begun in anger ends in shame. Benjamin Franklin, Paul Richard's Almanac. While rarely employed even at the time, maritime law did provide protection for a man seeking to enter lethal combat inside of a drinking establishment. Dempsey Carlyle, maritime law historian. By loudly proclaiming betrayal, any naval officer above the rank of bosun could suspend all laws pertaining to assault or murder in a 30-foot radius from the point of declaration for a period of time not to exceed 30 minutes. This allowed for the swift and brutal redress of grievances that would otherwise cripple a ship at sea. Betrayal could only be declared while a ship was in port, thus removing the need for the sudden and often catastrophic melees aboard a ship at sea. People used to use lie a lot. Lie and lime. Lime, lie. Sometimes rocks would clean clothes pretty well. Bert Wirt, colonial cleaning supplies expert. When you had to get a stain out of a set of stairs, you'd want to use lie. A lot of times people couldn't afford lie back then, so they just made use with what they could get. Usually that meant goose droppings. They just rub it into the stairs. The hardest thing to live with wasn't the stain that remained after that, but the smell. So then they'd use goose urine to get that out. Most of the time, people just used lye. Often overlooked among the copious amounts of facts about the revolution is the role Native Americans played in the war. During the French and Indian Wars, the Iroquois Confederacy, a six-nation alliance which included the Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, and Tuscarora nations, sided with the British in their fight against the French and their Algonquin allies. As hostilities broke out with the revolution, the Iroquois tried to stay neutral, seeing the fight as more of a family quarrel between country and colony. 
However, as fighting war on both sides, British and Patriots understood the potential of having natives as allies and pressed the leaders of the different nations to side with them. For the first time in centuries, the Confederacy split, with the Mohawk, Seneca, Onondaga, and Cayuga siding with Britain, and the Tuscarora and Oneida with the colonists. The British also allied with the strong Cherokee and Shawnee in the south. Britain's new allies were bloodthirsty in their campaigns, killing and destroying land, which prompted General George Washington to order a campaign to, quote, not merely overrun, but destroy the nations of the alliance. Native Americans provided invaluable assistance in the form of scouts, spies, fighting techniques, and even bringing food in when the colonial army were in dire straits. While the hope was for more respect and fair treatment from whoever won the war, the treaty signed in Paris made provisions for all nations involved in the conflict except the Native Americans, and expansion into their lands continued despite a promise for protection from Washington. The colonists' use of native tribes has proven in many respects quite successful as they make exceptional scouts and trackers. However, their attempts at spycraft have been less successful as they, they do tend to stand out among our soldiers. Lieutenant Terence Thrippany. The Ghost of Melrose Hall In the neighborhood of Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York, there are those at the present time, intelligent, educated, and quite sane, who would make a long detour rather than pass a certain spot there once the sun goes down. That site is the old site of Melrose Hall on Bedford Avenue between Clarkson and Winthrop Streets. On the occasions when folks have ventured near or had opportunity to be in the house after dark, chilling strangeness has played out in tragic form. Often when ownership of the house has changed hands, grand parties have been thrown to celebrate the new proprietors, but time and again, the parties would be interrupted by strange noises, screams, and moans from above the ballroom, and glimpses of a gaunt, woeful specter just out of the corner of guests' eyes. It quickly became infamous for its haunting eeriness and rather palpable sense of anguish, leading some owners to research the history of the harrowing hall. It was discovered that Melrose Hall was built by Colonel William Axtell, a loyalist and member of the King's Council. It was a scene of sumptuous dinners, splendid balls, and costly private theatricals and receptions that were attended by men famous in civil and military life and women renowned for their beauty and accomplishments. The house was situated in park-like grounds that covered 20 acres. It was a large, spacious, old-fashioned structure with no pretensions to architectural beauty. It was of frame, with great, heavy-hewn timbers, the main building two and a half stories high with wings on either side. But inside, it was a pretentious and costly mansion. The great double oaken door led into an immense hall, taking up the entire length and depth of the main house. It was wainscoted in dark oak, the polished floor covered with rich Persian rugs, bear, tiger, and lion skins, and the walls were hung with paintings by old masters, interspersed with instruments of war and the chase, while in the center, a fireplace large enough to roast an ox. To the left, a broad mahogany staircase led to the rooms above. The whole of the lower floor in the right wing was taken up by the library, and that of the left wing by an oak-paneled ballroom. The living, drawing, and guest rooms were in the upper stories of the main building and over the library. There was only one apartment over the ballroom, 
and that is the one upon which is based the ghostly history of Melrose Hall. It had no visible access with the rest of the house, and the only light it received was from two small diamond-shaped stained-glass windows, glazed in lead. They were always tightly closed. Colonel Axtell, according to tradition, was the second son of an English nobleman, and he married the daughter of a wealthy British merchant. His fiancée was accomplished and prepossessing, but unfortunately for her, she had a beautiful sister named Alva, whom the colonel fell in love with. His engagement had been announced. The wedding day was only a week off, but he was determined to marry his intended wife's sister. However, when he found out that if he had his way, he would be disowned by his family, and that from his future father-in-law not a penny was to be expected, he feared poverty for himself, as that he could offer no future to the woman he loved better than life. Shortly after the wedding, he received an important appointment in the American colonies to fight alongside the Mohawk war chief Joseph Brandt, and had immediately set sail for New York. The next ship which sailed for that port from England bore the colonel's beautiful sister-in-law, who, as the story goes, had disguised herself by putting on men's clothes. Arriving in America, she dressed herself again in women's clothes and secured a position as a maid. She saw her sister and Colonel Axtell driving a magnificent carriage attended by a retinue of mounted servants, and she decided to reveal herself to him, and did so. They resolved never again to be separated. It was then that Colonel Axtell built Melrose Hall. The apartment over the ballroom he fitted up with all the luxury and comfort that money could buy, and for three years it was the living tomb of Alva. The door to this room, covered by the life-size painting of one of the colonel's ancestors, was only accessed through his study, which no one, except an elderly slave named Rachel, was even permitted to enter. She was one of the hundred slaves kept by the colonel and was devoted to him, and no one besides her and the colonel knew what the secret chamber contained. Three years passed, when there was serious trouble in the form of the Sullivan Campaign in western New York, necessitating Colonel Axtell's absence from home for six weeks. Upon his return, he found that Rachel had died a week after his departure, and he rushed to the secret chamber, only to find Alva dead. Of her beautiful form, there was nothing left but a grim, attenuated corpse. She had gone through the horrible torture of starvation without uttering a sound, for fear of exposing the man whose sake she had sacrificed home and honor. The sight was agonizing for the colonel. He returned to the apartment at midnight, the usual hour of his visits there, carried Alva's remains out of the house, and buried them at the foot of a great oak tree. It was during the night following Alva's burial that strange noises were first heard in Melrose Hall. The last stroke of twelve from the town clock had hardly died out when the residents of the house were startled from their sleep by a piercing scream, followed by distressing moans that seemed to come from far off and were yet so plain that the voice could be distinguished as that of a woman. Servants were sent out to ascertain the cause, and they returned with pale faces and trembling limbs. The colonel was told that the voice came from the secret chamber. Shortly thereafter, the voice became silent. The next night it was heard again. Footsteps from above the ballroom could be heard. No one had the courage to make an investigation, but soon it was generally known that Melrose Hall was haunted by the spirit of the beautiful Alva, whose story had somehow leaked out and was gossiped about town. The place was thenceforth shunned as much as it had been sought after before, 
and the distraught Colonel Axtail soon sold the property and went back to England with his family. But to this day, the unlucky passerby can still hear the faint screams and moans which echo throughout Melrose Hall. Three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. Benjamin Franklin, Paul Richards' almanac. Yes, uh, following the Melrose tragedy, most secret rooms that were designed to contain a lover also had a small built-in dumbwaiter to allow the uh, delivery and removal of food and other waste associated with keeping a human being in a secret room for prolonged periods of time. Jasper Pullman, Secret Rooms Architect. The early 20th century also introduced the use of pneumatic tubes for food delivery and waste removal. However, as the same tube was often used for both, this led to a number of health problems. We no longer recommend building secret rooms to house people for months or years at a time. An honorable peace is and always was my first wish. I can take no delight in the effusion of human blood, but if this war should continue, I wish to have the most active part in it. John Paul Jones Many well-known figures emerged from the Revolutionary War. Washington, Cornwallis, Sam Adams, King George III, Benedict Arnold, plus the cadre of characters from the Continental Congress. But the war wasn't won with words, obviously and a colorful cast of supporting characters helped shape the outcome of the conflict immensely while enjoying comparatively moderate fame and legacies. Fighting for the Patriots down in South Carolina was a trio of offbeat brigadier generals, each with animalistic nicknames. The Swamp Fox, Francis Marion, whose guerrilla tactics and knowledge of the inhospitable landscape earned him his name. The Gamecock, Thomas Sumter, whose fierce fighting style and aggravation of British forces led to his moniker, and the Wizard Owl, Andrew Pickens. Who is just batch crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Who just casts spells that only pertain to birds. And and like to eat mice and then vomit them back up. (laughs) Uh, Andrew Pickens, whose campaigns against and soon after four Native Americans earned him respect and the name Skyagunsta, the Wizard Al, after a legendary Cherokee chieftain of the same name. Up north in Vermont was a fiery frontiersman named Ethan Allen, who led a band of rangers called the Green Mountain Boys in capturing Fort Ticonderoga in one of the first battles of the war. Catching the British forces completely by surprise in a raid just at the crack of dawn, Allen was able to capture the fort without a single shot being fired. You come out of there, you sons of British whores, or I'll smoke you out. Ethan Allen. Not all successful fighting came from the living, however. Tales of vengeful spirits and all manner of ill superstition wound their way through various encampments. And more than a few soldiers swore they bore witness to such spooks as their fellow fighters fell victim beside them. The Headless Patriot. Late in August of 1777, General George Washington had ridden into Wilmington, Delaware, hoping to muster some more soldiers to add to the fledgling Continental Army. While there, he met a farmer named Charles Miller, who had been instrumental in supplying food to Washington's armies. With Miller was his son, 16-year-old Charles Jr., who excitedly offered up his services to join in the fight. Washington, not anxious to enlist such a young man, 
assured the boy that feeding the army was just as important, and that he knew he could depend on the boy to fight when it was necessary. I hope he was real condescending. Mmm, you know, food is just as important. And I'm sure if you ever had to fight, you could. Plus, I know all ladies like a farmer over soldier. Right. These uniforms are really hard to keep clean, and it doesn't look like you bathe much. No judgment, but you don't bathe much. We crossed the Delaware just to steal their soap. Did you know that? That's how much we bathe. Yeah, make sure that gets into the history books. I'm sure you're good at writing. Just days later, word spread that British forces were on the march towards Wilmington, and ever ready, the cocksure young Charles... (laughs) The cocksure young Charles Jr., (laughs) jumped on his white horse and sped off toward the militia's position. The Patriot forces were positioned by Cooch's Bridge, (laughs) just south of Newark, and made themselves ready as the British army led by Lord Cornwallis himself drew ever closer. It was soon apparent how outnumbered the Patriots were, and they fell back to the bridge itself in a last-ditch effort to hold the position. Fighting admirably, Charles Jr. and the militia held the bridge until Cornwallis brought artillery and hit the Patriots with a deadly barrage. It was one of these cannons that spelled the end for young Charles, as a cannonball flew through the air and decapitated the boy. Stunned, his comrades were even more dumbfounded to see the headless boy rise up, mount his white horse, and strike off into the woods. The militia was forced to retreat soon after, and a few days later, George Washington set up defenses at Chad's Fort, Pennsylvania. As a contingent of British forces closed in, Washington rode in front of his men for a morale boost, which also made him a fine target for redcoat sharpshooters. Just as they took aim, a sword-wielding headless horseman on a white charger broke through the forest behind the Patriots, passed right through General Washington, and headed directly for the redcoats. Startled, the marksmen fired at the horsemen, only to watch their shots fly through the specter and harmlessly hit the trees. The horseman was then upon them, and in one fluid quick motion, brought its sword across the necks of the British soldiers. Washington and his army stood aghast as the apparition disappeared into the forest, the heads of the soldiers hitting the ground behind it. Later, at the Battle of Brandywine, the headless patriot was said to have raged through enemy lines straight for the battery, taking the heads of several artillerymen in the process. In the years since, several stories have floated that the frightened phantom has returned to Cooch's Bridge, (laughs) possibly searching for its head or further innuendo. In any event, if you find yourself near Cooch's Bridge, (laughs) make sure you're not wearing any red unless you have a really good head start. Forests were particularly harsh to navigate, especially if you were on foot, on horseback, or in some sort of wagon or wheeled type vehicle. Albert Wolfkin, Battlefield Historian. In fact, the only way you could successfully navigate a forest is if you were some sort of specter, phantom, or apparition of some type or another. These types of entities could easily dance through the trees, over the rocks, and the hidden gullies that you often find in forests that make it so difficult to navigate whilst on foot, on horseback, or in some sort of wheeled vehicle. At the beginning of the war, the colonists had no standing army, not to mention uniforms. Many in the Continental Congress were against having an army, 
which one day might become an instrument of tyranny. But soon militia from all over the colonies were placed under central authority and more infantry was ordered. By the war's end, as many as 175,000 soldiers had served in the Continental Army, although at any given moment, troop levels never exceeded 20,000 men. At some points in the war, it dwindled to fewer than 5,000 soldiers. Squirrel guns and small arms were all the colonists had at first, and more standardized weapons like the French Charleville musket had to be purchased from abroad. Gunpowder was always in short order, and had it not been for French intervention, might have run out completely before the war's end. Militia were largely farmers and citizen patriots, very untrained in the ways of war, but usually pretty good at hunting squatch. It wasn't until Congress hired a Prussian aristocrat, Baron Friedrich Wilhelm von Steuben, to oversee army training that soldier asses got whipped into shape. Teaching proper drill and battlefield tactics to the regiments, von Steuben even published a training manual to update troops on the techniques of the time. With regards to military discipline, I may safely say that no such thing existed in the Continental Army. Ban von Steuben. The daily rations for a soldier in the Continental Army certainly looked hearty on paper. Each recruit was promised one pound of beef, salted fish or pork, a pound of bread, three pints of dried peas or vegetables, a pint of milk, and a quart of spruce beer or cider. In reality, the availability of food depended entirely on the Army's ability to purchase and distribute supplies. Units in the field frequently had to do without. We were absolutely, literally starved, Joseph Plum Martin later wrote about conditions in winter. Such was the case during the atrocious and ass-numbing winter the Army spent at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. Conditions were harsh as 12,000 men were squeezed into a poorly outfitted encampment in little more than shacks. Disease was rampant, and food, proper clothing and shoes, and medicine were almost non-existent. Over 2,000 men died there, and the threat of desertion of the rest loomed large, yet the resolve of the Patriots never broke, and the army survived to continue the fight for independence. From the Wagoner of the Alleghenies A nation with its naked breast against the frozen barriers pressed, heaving its tedious way and slow through shifting gulfs and drifts of woe, where every blast that whistled by was bitter with its children's cry. Such was the winter's awful sight for many a dreary day and night, what time our country's hope forlorn of every needed comfort shorn lay housed within a hurried tent where every keen blast found a rent, and oft the snow was seen to sift along the floor its piling drift, or mocking the scant blanket's fold, across the night couch frequent rolled, where every path by a soldier beat, or every track where a sentinel stood, still held the print of naked feet and off the crimson stains of blood, where famine held her spectral court, and joined by all her fierce allies. She ever loved a camper fort beleaguered by the wintry skies. But chiefly when diseases by to sink the frame and dim the eye, until with seeking forehead bent, in martial garments cold and damp, pale death patrols from tent to tent to count the charnels of the camp. Such was the winter that prevailed within the crowded frozen gorge, such were the horrors that assailed the Patriot Band 
at Valley Forge. Thomas Buchanan Reed Yes, conditions at Valley Forge were just awful. Uh, there was starvation. There wasn't a not enough blankets. There weren't is not enough shoes. Uh, people, people were just, they were not happy. Bernie Huskins, Valley Forge reenactor. We hold our Valley Forge reenactment every February 17th or the closest weekend there too. Uh, we have, uh, for the, in the interest of historical accuracy, we do take the shoes from every, uh, third participant. We limit food. Uh, we did have a problem with a small pop tarts ring. We were able to break that up. Um, we also limit access to medical care, uh, and, uh, really, really just, just really beat some folks up, really, really give them a feel for what our founding fathers went through in Valley Forge. I deliberately gave a guy frostbite once. We don't, we don't have a lot of return interest. One man with courage is the majority. Thomas Jefferson. You what, mate? Two British guys. Twice as many as the guy with courage. The Continental Army was as diverse an organization as the nation had fought to establish. Within its ranks were Germans, Dutch, Scottish, and Irish volunteers. Up to a tenth of its soldiers were African Americans, both slaves and freemen. In fact, one Rhode Island regiment was more than three-quarters African-American. By the last years of the war, 5,000 African-Americans served in the Continental Army. According to an estimate by a French officer fighting at Yorktown, up to a quarter of the rebel forces were made up of African-Americans. In 1777, a Hessian wrote, No regiment is to be seen in which there is not the black men in abundance, and among them there are able-bodied and strong and brave fellows. The Dunmore Proclamation of 1775 guaranteed freedom to any slave that volunteered to serve the king, an offer which tens of thousands of slaves would eventually take in what some historians argue was the first widespread emancipation of slaves in American history. Perhaps the most famous African-American soldier was James Armistead, a slave who enlisted in the Continental Army and worked as a spy for the Patriots. Fooling Cornwallis and turncoat Benedict Arnold himself, Armistead gathered invaluable intelligence on British army plans, which led to Washington's victory at Yorktown in 1781. Women were not left out of the party by any means either. Women played a major role in almost all aspects of the war, including providing handmade clothing and blankets for the army due to the boycotts of British textiles, aiding and quartering the wounded, tending farms and families, fundraising, and even fighting. Some just wanted to be soldiers for liberty, like Deborah Sampson, Hannah Snell, and Sally St. Clair, who successfully hid their gender for a time. St. Clair kept her gender a secret until her death, while Sampson was discovered and honorably discharged. Deborah Sampson was later awarded a veteran's pension. Mary Hayes, the famous Molly Pitcher, carried water to men on the battlefield and took up the cannon when her husband was wounded. And many women were especially effective spies, carrying secret documents and gathering intel for both sides of the war. We trained for months on ciphers, codes, and dead drops, and it was all most disappointing to find out. With enough cleavage, men will do whatever you tell them to. Colonial Spy, Charlotte Petticoats. The Curse of Mary Post. 
During the early years of the war, a trail ran through the Ramapo Mountains of northeastern New Jersey and served as an important route for supplies and troop movements from West Point in New York to central New Jersey. Along the trail was the ever-popular Mary Post Inn, a place for lodging, dining, and drinking run by the buoyant and buxom brunette Young Mary Post. Boing. Always happy to oblige her patrons and drinking conversation, Mary would serve the officers and soldiers that passed through and listen to everything they had to say. Beginning around 1777, American transports and supply caravans began to be ambushed quite frequently along the Cannonball Trail, enough that colonial officers began to get concerned that they had a traitor in their midst. Washington's aide-de-camp, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Hamilton, began to take note of how the charming Mary would get his soldiers to talk to her, and soon enough his suspicion peaked. He ordered some of his men to shadow Mary after a particularly rowdy night of soldiers carousing, and they watched as Mary slipped out into the darkness, got on her horse, and stole away secretly. They followed her to New York City, where she met with her lover, the British officer Major Carlton MacDonald, to divulge what she had learned. Instead of arresting her outright, Washington advised Hamilton to set up a trap for her. Hamilton then asked Mary to close the inn one night for a private high-security planning meeting with officers. She readily agreed, and the night of the meeting made sure her guests were all well-served and attended to. Hamilton spoke of a large shipment of supplies that would be coming through soon, including the exact time, date, and location. The next night, he observed Mary ride off down the trail towards New York. On the date he had set up, British forces burst onto the trail at the location Hamilton had specified, only to be ambushed by a small but well-trained squad of patriots. Later, Mary was arrested and, still in custody, was seized by a mob of locals angry at her treason. They beat her senseless and then strung up a noose on a nearby maple tree and hoisted her up by her neck. The mob cheered and tortured her, and as the life was slipping from her, she spoke with what energy she could muster. She swore revenge against the Patriot mob, cursed the British who didn't rescue her, and cursed the maple tree itself. She warned that anyone causing harm to the tree would come to understand the true meaning of pain and suffering, and with that, she popped her clogs. Tales of the hanging of Mary Post and the cursed maple tree made their way down through the generations, and the tree itself survived through the years. In 1917, a Boy Scout camp opened in the Ramapo Mountains, and the tree happened to be within its area. In 1923, a scoutmaster cut a limb from it to show his scouts that there actually was no curse. Three days later, he and his family perished in a house fire. In 1939, a camp official tried to cut the tree down, when his axe suddenly ricocheted off the trunk and chopped his neck, killing him. A camper once carved initials into the tree, and the next morning awoke to severe leg pain, only to discover a bone fracture in it. In 1955, a camp employee tried selling pieces of the tree as souvenirs, but soon after he started having vivid and terrifying nightmares, eventually leading him to be committed in a mental institute for the rest of his life. In 1969, the state declared the tree unsafe due to rotting and ordered it be taken down. The night before it was to come down, two workers surveyed it and wondered at his objection to the curse while the other laughed it off. During the night, the skeptical man died of an aneurysm, causing the other man to flee. Finally, in 1980, a group of 13 individuals, witches, took chainsaws to the tree and finally felled it. Three died in accidents soon after and the rest suffered non-fatal injuries. Unfortunately, the eeriness did not abate after that. It seems the apparition of Mary herself has been reported wandering the area since the tree came down. If you decide to go camping in the Ramapo Mountains this summer, make sure to hide any rope that you might have. You certainly don't want to piss off the ghost of Mary Post. 
or bring extra rope, ghost rope. You hang her again from another tree. It is kind of cool to think that a tree that was used to hang a revolutionary war trader, like survived until in, in our lifetimes yeah. was, was there. That's pretty cool. I think that story was bogus because like who would let a trader leave a curse on people who like live for freedom and liberty for later on? You know, she was the one who done wrong. She shouldn't be able to curse that. Lynn Deckner and Tommy Flanagan of the Dorchester Historical Preservation Society. You turn your back on America, you shouldn't be able to, like, curse a tree that's still in America. I mean, my point is, why would she curse the tree, you know? Like, she had all that mob there that was, like, jeering at her. Yeah, she'd have been why like, Why would hey, you put a curse on the tree? Stevie Dickles, I know you. I know you. Yeah, you're curse cursed. you. You're, you're cursed. cursed. Stevie Dickles cursed. cursed. Amanda Lamenitz. I know you. We used to go to school together. Cursed. I mean, you, you know what, stupid? Yeah, you're cursed. You're cursed. You know what, tree? F you. You're cursed too, tree. Yeah, f you. F yeah. What the f f the British curse? Why curse the British? Yeah, curse the British. They're the ones that put you in this fucking mess. Yeah, they sold you up the river. I mean, you sold us up the river. You don't see us cursing you. That's right. We tortured you. We killed you. Now That's done. It. Done. Story's done. over. Walk away. We're done. Walk away. You don't have to be a fucking curser. Like, are, are we gonna, are we gonna fucking curse Johnny Damon? Are we gonna curse Noma? Oh, come on. Don't even start with me, all right? Listen, that's a business. That's a business. They gotta, when, when Red Sox gotta go, you know, they gotta go. And I, I wish them the best of luck. They you don't come, gotta go. You come back into my house. I'll try to string you up from a tree. Not, not gonna curse them, though. Because you know what? We got class. It's right. That's right. You know what class is? It's staying with your team. It's Tom Brady. That's class. That's, that's a class. patriot. That's, that's a class patriot. Right there. That's you want to see patriot. a patriot? That's a it's patriot. It's a patriot right Tom there. Tom Brady's a patriot, and he doesn't curse Because he's wicked loyal, and he loves his country. That's right. Go Pats. Go Pats. The moment that the independence of America is agreed to by our government, a son of Great Britain is set, and we shall no longer be a powerful or respectable people. William Perry Fitzmaurice. The Earl of Shelburne. A total of 25,000 Americans died during the Revolutionary War, and the other 17,000 died of sickness, went missing in action, and other causes. At Yorktown, the victory that won the war, Frenchmen outnumbered Americans almost three to one. America would not have won the war without the French. With the war won, Congress moved quickly to dismantle the military. By early 1784, all that remained of the Continental Army was a token force of just 80 men. Once again, state militias were expected to safeguard their own territories. The following year, federal authorities increased the standing army to 700 men, eight infantry companies known as the 1st American Infantry Regiment, and two artillery units. Within the decade, the Continental Army was again expanded and renamed the Legion of the United States. After Yorktown, King George III vowed to keep fighting. When Parliament spurned his vow, the king wrote a letter of abdication then withdrew it. He tried to console himself with the thought that Washington would become a dictator and make the Americans long for royal rule. When he was told that Washington planned to resign his commission and return to his farm, the monarch gasped, If he does that, sir, he will be the greatest man in the world. I'm well aware of the toil and blood and treasure it will cost us to maintain this declaration and to support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom I see the rays of ravishing light and glory. 
I can see the end is worth all the means. This is our day of deliverance. John Adams. And I'll tell you what more, Flora. I also declare this to be our day of, of pawns. <laughs> I shall be the first to sign my name to these puns. Oh, not shell it. Four puns. Oh, <laughs> that was close. Flora and I are actually 700 years old, and if we ever close an episode without a nutshell, Dorian Gray, poof, <laughs> old dusty skeletons. Now I'm sure someone would be like, uh, you like you forget that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and that, friends and countrymen, is Revolutionary War Ghosts. Star-spangled, patriotic America loving. In a German-trained and traitor-hanging nutshell. Oh, nice. Okay, now now's for puns. Now's for puns. Flora, you go. Ah, uh, yes, I do. You son of a bitch. I have a, a butcher. A butcher? A butcher that uh, is is colonial era themed. It's on the uh, it's on the coast. You would think they would have a lot of seafood, but but no. It's I would hope. It's it's actually uh, it's it's a place of of uh, of piggery. Whoa! Uh, and they do their own. Uh, slaughtering there nice but the thing is they they slaughter the hogs upstairs even though uh it it's it's so unconventional a lot of um captains from ships along the coast like Uh to come in there for a bite to eat but they just can't help but stare at all the 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 pig blood that runs down the bloody stairs of ham hock house (laughs) nice ham hock house (laughs) I've got one. I've okay. got a. I've got a. Uh, I got a, a new product, a new potential sponsor of the podcast. Great, great. Um, it was a. It's an old product that they're bringing back, because when 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 you're a ship's captain and shit goes south during shore leave, and you have to kill a guy in a prolonged sword fight, <laughs> nothing quenches better than <laughs> betrayal <or> raid. <laughs> Replace those electrolytes. Yeah, with swords. Yeah, but clearly not with humor. <laughs> I, I've got um, there was there was this little known uh, general from South Carolina. Uh-huh. You hardly ever hear about this guy, but he's got such a lasting legacy because he had so many illegitimate children and lovers and uh-huh. and uh, women that he would love and leave, and and he he earned quite a, a reputation. But he would never take responsibility for it. He said it was always uh, somebody else's somebody else's fault. Yeah, it was it was always something else's fault. Yeah, this and in this South Carolina South Carolinian mm-hmm. just happened to be Thomas Humpter, <laughs> the blame cock. Oh, Thomas Humpter, Sumner, game cock. <laughs> what else you got? Well, um, you know it's it's hard to remember because we live in this age that we live in this yes. age. <laughs> We live. We live in this age of nerdy enlightenment, where you know the uh, San Diego Comic Con is a week long festival of all things awesome. Mm-hmm. But there was a time when we when when we had to live in the shadows. When the nerd when 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 nerds had to hide 
the jocks ruled everything. And it wasn't until that fateful day where we finally won in our, our stronghold, in our, in, our, in our own helms deep, when we as a people won the battle of Dorktown. <laughs> and declared ourselves free of tyranny and oppression. Wedge Nation Wedge. without participation. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Dorktown. That's it. Dorktown. That's it. Dorktown. Nice. Now we enlist. <laughs> yes, we. Yes, the, you've uh, been pressed into service. <laughs> the help of uh, some very strong allies in this war of words. Mm-hmm. Please come and be our uh, our French and Native American helpers. Yeah, the the reason that we can get this done is because yeah, you you are truly <laughs> our our Native American scouts and our French gunpowder and weapon suppliers. That's right. You've just skirted the British blockade to deliver some listener mail. All right, here we go. Listener mail with the new sleeker aerodynamic unibody construction designed in a wind tunnel. (laughs) Uh, Right off the bat, high fives to Chris Mall. Hey, Chris. So welcome aboard. Thank you for listening. I'm so glad you enjoy it. And thank you for the show suggestions. Thanks, Chris. I uh, heard from Crary. Crary. How Crary? Very Crary. Soups. What if it wasn't at all Crary? What if it was Nary Crary? No, it's Soups. What if it's his uncle, Larry Crary? Um, still, still with this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Crary sent us some great suggestions, and just um, uh, he he w- he wanted to let Mister Stecco know that that he put your plan into action. Despite hailing from New York State, he recently married a lovely young woman from Calgary. Brilliant! So smart, so smart. Now you got both sides of the of the equation covered. That's right. He says he'll be traipsing across the border at will. Congratulations, <sighs> Crary! Congratulations! That's awesome. Ah, uh-huh. look to the moon. It is Lunar Kitty! (laughs) (laughs) What's wrong with us? Everything. Hello, Lunar Kitty. Hi. Lunar Kitty writes, love the two-part alien, uh, the alien taxonomy. Good. Uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space has many great bad lines, cheesy flying saucers, and a real Dracula, plus a fake Dracula. However, absolutely correct. The uh, robot plus... Uh, ape man thing was not plan nine from outer space. Oh yeah. So, Oh, Oh, so I'm sure that just the sheer weight of these things is going to bury me and put me into the uh, penalty box for which I already have a transgression that I'll get back to before we wrap this episode up that, that next time I'm going to have to go in the penalty box for, Oh, you do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I done, I done somebody wrong. Oh no. Well, in addition to not knowing which movie has robot head, ape body. <laughs> Thanks, Lunar Kitty. Arigato, Lunar Kitty. Dave, we have heard from Caroline. Oh, Kidoki. That's right. Nothing could be finer than to hear from Carolina on our podcast. Get, okay. So Caroline says she is Lana's best friend. But she wanted to point out Lana is pronounced like Lana, as oh, in banana. <laughs> Lana, we've been f***ing it up for a really long time. She said Lana's just too nice to correct us. <laughs> oh, oh. Don't be too nice. you yeah. got to correct us. Yeah. We don't want to be huge a- 
assholes. Like, I mean, we are, but not in that direction. If not, we knew well, how your name was pronounced, we would have done it. So sorry, Lana. Sorry, Lana. <laughs> Caroline and Lana are drunk on Four Roses writing this. Uh, visited the Four Roses distillery. Enjoyed it. I've got a bottle of, of Four Roses back uh, in the old uh, medicine cabinet there. <laughs> and uh, Caroline and Lana need need to know when the show is so that they can plan accordingly. Yes, we are we are working, and it's it's becoming very frustrating to us. But we are we have we are we are not dragging our asses on this. It's it's a thing. Caroline says she works in metabolic cancer research. Ooh, and so she needs to know so she doesn't leave her mice hanging. I I nice. I, I get you and. Way to go. What a good thing to 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 be a part of. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Not so fast. What if she's working for an evil corporation and they're trying to create metabolic cancer? You don't know, dude. You don't know. We thought we didn't even think that there was another way to say Lana. We didn't know. Wow. So now our whole world's topsy turvy, splitsy swervy. I I what are we even gonna you know do? What? Benefit of the doubt. Yeah. That you're yeah. working against metabolic cancer. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We're, 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 you know, house always wins. House yeah. always wins. But <laughs> I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, thank you, Caroline, yeah, thank aka you, Caroline. the bestest. Is truly the bestest. And thanks for sitting us straight on Lana. And Lana, sorry. <laughs> if you needed another reason to hate me beyond my Kentucky fandom. What do you got, Dave? How about Walter F. Christ? No relation. Uh, Walter has a very interesting point to make. Oh, does he? Yeah says, uh, do a great job of being respectful to a variety of world religions and spiritual traditions on the show, except for one. Uh-oh. Uh, how come every time you mention Jesus, it has to be in a funny voice, a comic redneck accent, or a parody church lady voice? You don't lay on a crazy Arab voice when you say Muhammad, or a comic Asian voice to speak of the Buddha. Now, the funny thing is, when I first read this through, I thought he was saying we did that, and I was like, oh, shit, I don't remember doing that. Oh, no. <laughs> And but but wait, what are you talking about? Every time we say Jesus the Christ, we do it respectfully <laughs> and normally. I, I don't think, know. I think it's because it's uh you know it's the it's the I, I think is it's the religious religious world we were brought up in. So it's kind of like like I can I can beat up my own brother, you know, kind of thing. Like eh, it's family, I can do that. Mm. I, I I don't know. That's my guess. Um, yeah, I. Mm. I, I never do it maliciously if that's uh, yeah if that's what you're asking or or you know yeah I I think for I, for me I think it's comfort like I'm, I'm I I know what I'm talking about you know it's yeah. when I when I don't then I have to be more careful or something like that but I think it's a good point yeah, yeah. I <laughs> half the time I think it's just me whenever I I say Jesus it's 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 hearing in my head like a movie or something that, right. that I'm pulling it from yeah or much just, more exposure so you've got a lot yeah yeah plus and we've uh, covered this before from the world of improv you, when we do voices when we do accents or impressions an asian or or middle eastern yeah accent is it it's like blackface right there are there are some weird and and I'll be the first to say not entirely logical they don't follow the straight line rules for for what is and isn't okay, weirdly enough. And 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 I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Flora and I have had hours of discussion about it's just a it's just a weird world for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And uh and you know, and people get to decide, uh, who's that who's that heel puppet guy? Jeff Dunham? That's him. 
he gets to be as racist and and do as many because he's not doing it the puppet is right <laughs> you know he gets to do that as much as he wants and that's fine and and i think everyone who who performs gets to draw their own line wherever they want yeah and yeah. i you know and like we said some I, I we could probably hit it and quit it but we'd have to be really good at it and what whatever we hit would have to be really good and yeah. like it's just too hard to line up all those bowling pins right and i you know and, and you know we've got our own you know rules for what we do and don't do and yeah, this and this I believe the first to say there this is not it's not a it's not a level playing field. You know, there's yeah. some things you do, some things you don't. But, but it's it's a weird question and and strangely more a question in of performing and comedy than than even really our own personal beliefs yeah. on it. You know, it's kind of a yeah. weird yeah, but, it, it never never meant to uh, to be offensive yeah. if, if that's No, 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 you know, certainly which, not in that direction. Too. But yeah, no, that's a good question. Thanks, Walter. Sure. Can I call you Wally? <laughs> I want to. Mr. Christ. <laughs> oh, I think you mean Mr. Christ. <laughs> yeah, you left out the Irish uh, yeah. <laughs> version. Dave, we heard from Xenophon Jackson. <laughs> oh, my friend Xenophon Jackson. Xenophon Jackson, what do you got to say? A lot. Xenophon says, I don't usually write into podcasts, but the interaction you guys have with the BP community is heartwarming. Yes! Yeah. That's what we wanted. You Except finally validated us. With, with our <laughs> oh, nonsense. <laughs> Xenophon actually uh, lives in rural Georgia and went, uh, after our le- episode, went to the Georgia Guidestone. Sweet! Did you leave room for nature? <laughs> he said uh, he found it deserted. There's There was nobody around. Huh. And it said it was a lot more imposing in in person than what he expected. And there was a sense of creepiness about it. Looked around for, you know, 10 yeah. minutes. And then that was that. Was that. Said, yep. Sound, uh, found, found some trash on the, the granite piece on the, on the ground. It was a small torn package that had crudely drawn magic marker saying, only God can judge me and pee-pee with an arrow drawn toward a... Uh, <laughs> A woman on the package, apparently. <laughs> I like to believe that the person who did that wrote the pee-pee thing first, then felt kind of bad. Then yeah. was like, no, 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 no. I don't have to feel somebody yelled at him about it. It was like, only God can judge me. Apparently, there was also a, a pin-on button that had Princess Leia and a metal bikini on it laying around. Sweet. The slave mm. bikini. And he said on the way home, a red vehicle began following them. The paranoid part of his brain began worrying that those were government agents as they all had sunglasses on. But then the car turned off the road and he felt like an idiot. <laughs> well, that's usually, part of part of visiting those places. Yeah. You, usually those cars are, 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 are black, though. and Maybe they're changing it up because people are getting wise to it. Maybe. Maybe they had a sale on... Uh, on cars and trying to save the government some money. <laughs> I can't even finish it. Thank you for writing in Xenophon. And thanks for uh, telling us about the, the old guide stones. I think you know, if we're ever in that area, we'll definitely make a, a trip out there. Cause I, yeah. I'd love to, to check that stuff out too. Yeah, I would too. Except for it's in the South. It's hot. There. Oh my. Oh my, we'd have to go in the fall. Well, we'll do a Dragon Con road trip or something. Get the guide students on the way. <laughs> Flora, have you ever, uh, you ever gone on a road trip to Dragon Con? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, cut to flashbacks in, yeah. the, in my face. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that <laughs> fire. 
No, no, never been. <laughs> Got an email here from Tara. That's T-E-R-A-H Tara, who has the, 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 the most attractive friends in the world. Oh. Yes, as I recall. Um, <laughs> and says, you know, thank you for uh, reading her email thank during you. the Bolson. Well, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. writing it. Thank you. And uh, Tara's friend that turned her on to the podcast is also named T-A-R-A, pronounced Tura. Tura. Mm-hmm. Like Turble. Hi, Tura. Hi, Tura. Hi, Tura. Hi, so Tara. high five to both of you. That is Tara a, and Tura. Yeah, that is confusing. I can Turrible see how that could problems. Also, Tara is curious about the upcoming Strangers with Candy uh, chat episode. Candy chat episode. Well, you're not going to have to be curious about that for long because that's that's shortly going to be a part of your life. That's right. Big thing coming. And uh, also had some questions about sending candy to the Candy Chat ladies to review. So we will absolutely respond with that information. Oh, well, l- let me have that that mail then, and I'll I'll make sure to yeah shoot you the info. So thank you, Tara. Thanks, Tara and Tara and Tara Tara Tara. Tara Tara, Tarantula. We heard from Tarantula. Uh, <laughs> heard from Grimlock Jr. <laughs> He's a tiny dinosaur. <laughs> Saying we must do an episode talking to the guy's psychic wife or, or friend or, or wife's friend or the 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 person who predicted all oh, the right, right. stuff. Yeah. Says well. we owe our listeners and ourselves. Uh, man. If you put it in terms of like it's doing it for the podcast, maybe, but boy, I'm not going to be excited about that. My aura is going to be killing it. Are you, are you scared? It's not scared. I don't like to know things. I like oh. to discover things. I don't want to know what my Christmas presents are until I open them. I don't like, I, 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 I don't want to like, it would make, it makes me crazy. Because then I will measure the next six months to a year of my life against what I heard from a psychic trying to determine at every given moment how accurate that was. And is that what you did with me and tarot and me and palmistry? Yeah, a little bit. (laughs) Yes. Then I'm like, well, I don't know. He did say this. No, no, shut up. Shut up. No, no, no. (laughs) It makes me crazy. It's just a a lot of brain work, a lot of spinning wheels. Yeah. A lot of grinding metal. Yeah. Well, thank you, Grimlock Junior. Yeah, thank you. And uh, we got a few puns coming up, but real quick, I want to uh, give a shout out to Puffsalot Ghosts. Oh man, <laughs> Puffsalot has done uh, some amazingly <laughs> incredible work on some videos for the Miscrypted yeah. contest. It's an audiovisual drug trip. <laughs> it is. It's a journey to take with your eyes. We we have enjoyed watching the the videos you put together, Puffsalot. Yes, we have indeed. I I. Like I was laughing so hard and enjoyed it so much like that I was uh, tears coming down my face. And then I started like just sweating a lot because I was laughing so much. It was weird. <laughs> We've um, tweeted, retweeted his, his tweets yeah. on, on the tweets, tweetsers, but tweets, uh, tweets low. I'm sure if you, if you just go to YouTube and search for the miscrypted uh, contest. Yeah, you'll find it. Oh it'll, man. It'll be on there. Um, and I, I just, I can't get home. Dag out of my head. Yeah, he he laid down a sweet beat. (laughs) Uh, Puffsalot also has an amazing email, including a uh, a theme for old Spring Hill Jack. Sweet. You take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have Spring Hill Jack. (laughs) Spring Hill Jack. 
There's your time. You gotta go and show your titties to old Springfield. <laughs> oh wow, titties. <laughs> oh, and it goes on. I love that it's to the Facts of Life theme song. That's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Puffsalot is floating through uh, the the archives and loving every minute of it, and and we're loving that that yeah, you're loving it. Thank you so much. He says, my home ghosts and I are planning a midnight ambush on that pill-popping yellow belly pie chart wannabe for donations. <laughs> and he says, uh, keep dishing out them ha-has. He looks forward to acquiring his very own Blurry Photos t-shirt and prostituting it on his chest with pride and a squint. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Thank you, Puffsalot Ghost. Yes. And now let's do a quick pun roundup for, uh, the, for this week. Uh, how about this? Uh, D.B. Cooper comes from a big family where he got his uh, ideas for his heist. Some include his French cousin who gets on board planes and hijacks the plane just for the airline food in the minibar cart. Who's that? D.B. Super. <laughs> his animal activist half-sister who sneaks on board airplanes bound to transport zoo animals so she can steal the big cats. D.B. Zooper. <laughs> Don't ask how she gets the tiger in the parachute. I will. <laughs> also. Who was that from? That was Lunar Kitties. Lunar Kitties. And from Tyler. Tyler. Uh, I remember once my girlfriend and I were walking through the local festival when we uh, we hold here in Erie, Pennsylvania. We stopped to check out these three mimes performing for a group of people. The first two were fine and actually very talented. But the third one, oh my God. The third one smelled like broccoli in the dumpster behind Walmart on a hot muggy day. <laughs> Bull. He kept getting closer to my girl, so I finally flipped out and cussed at him. My girlfriend calls this incident my... Gross encounter with the third mime. (laughs) (laughs) Well played, Tyler. Thanks, Tyler. And one more here from Amused Muse. Amused Muse. Well, two, actually. But um, actually, Amused Muse beat us to this one. Uh, Uh Uh-oh. Chronologically, yeah. yeah. She says, there's a unique water park in Elbert County, Georgia. It's unusual in that all the park fixtures, rather than being made out of plastic or metal, have been carved out of high-quality granite. It's the Georgia Slidestones. Oh, so we got to thank her uh, in part for that intro. That's right. Uh, A scale to quantify interactions with different types of cats, ranging from feral alley cats to affectionate pets. Close encounters of the furred kind. (laughs) Uh, So thank you, uh, Amused Muse. And thanks everyone who wrote in. And also a special thanks that we are (sighs) very belated in. Yeah. Yes, yes. Thank you to Mr. Ken Height. Yeah, this is why I have to go to the penalty box. Ken Height helped us out with uh, some great recommendations for the uh, legendary weapons episode. That's right. Uh, he's, he's, he's kind of like a professor emeritus of, of blurry photos industries. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. thank you, Ken Height uh, and his lovely wife, Sheila, for all of their, their excellent, uh, not only material contributions to uh, how we do our podcast, but just good old fashioned advice. That's right. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Yeah, you um, guys are magnificent. Also, uh, happy birthday to, as we record this, Dark Mark Soloff Dark of, Mark of Soloff. Blastro Podcast. Go check out Blastro Idiot Podcast. Idiot roommate of Dottori Belordo. Such a fun time. Yeah. So happy birthday, brother. Send him a, a birthday wish by by liking Blastro Podcast on Facebook. Yeah. And, uh, right after you like us, yep. if you haven't yet. Go to uh, Twitter and follow us at Blurry underscore photos. Go to iTunes and rate us five stars and review us. Hey, thank you guys. We're uh, 
we're at the Hildo mark yeah, for one, ratings. One Hildo, 100 ratings on iTunes with an exact 94% success rate of five stars. That's right. Which is pretty great. I can't complain about that. Yeah, so thank I'm, you so much. I'm happy about that. Keep them coming. Let's see how fast we can get to two. That's right. And and we are, uh, we, oh, knock, we knock smell. And- we smell that sweet, succulent scent of six Hildos. Yeah, on Facebook. Man, we're getting it done. It's going faster every time. Yeah, so thank you guys for that. And thank you for liking our posts. Yes. Just, just even liking them or sharing them or commenting on them, even on, on the Facebook. That that does actually help uh, us out a lot. And also, we appreciate knowing that that you like it and you're yeah. there and, and engaged. Helps spread the word, lets us know that you guys care. And so that's why we do it, because it's fun. Yeah. You're fun. Go to uh, audibletrial.com slash blurry photos to get your free audio book download. Mm-hmm. A lot of the stuff that, that we talk about, uh, they have uh, books on. We've mentioned Dead Mountain. Uh, yeah. The story of Dyatlov Pass is on there. Other books. <laughs> tons, yeah, tons, of, tons of other stuff. But we've got some great stuff cooking uh, yeah. in, in terms of authors and, and talkings. That all that stuff is right on the horizon. It'll be here before you know it. Yeah, actually. we've got a, we actually have a, a fair number of guests coming up. Yeah, and um, some new, some familiar. <laughs> wink, wink. Thank you for your donations. Please mm-hmm. keep those coming. You can donate on the website. Thank you again to uh, Alka Hollywood for having us on their podcast yes, to hope enjoy. You listen to that one. To enjoy drinks and and Nicholas Cage. And thanks again to the Chicago Podcast Co op. And since uh, and since we're on it, uh, yeah. why don't you go and, and listen to another member of the co- of the co op, Alka Hollywood? Yeah, you've got a nice transition. That's right. Just a, a real quick about them. Alka Hollywood is Clint and Jared, and they and a guest talk about one movie each week, old or new, good or bad, and create a custom cocktail and drinking game for it. We had a lot of fun talking about National Treasure. Yeah. East Coast Goonies, that's what I call it. <laughs> that's right. So uh, check them out. Check out the co-op. And I think that's going to do it for this yeah. episode of uh, Blurry Photos. Yeah. I have been Dave Coochbridge Stecco. And I've been David Wicked Pissa Flora. <laughs> nice. Yeah, in your f***ing face. F*** you. Yeah, f*** you. F*** you. And the f***ing better one, so f*** out. <laughs> yeah. I love this guy. Say hi to your mother for me. Bye. If he does that, sir, he'll be the greatest man in the world. Because I'm the king. I'm well aware of the toil and blood and treasure it will cost us to maintain this declaration and to support and defend these states. Yet through all the gloom I see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is worth all the means. This is our day of deliverance. Yes. <laughs> totally was going horse at the end. They have deliverance. Yes. yes. Mm.
Maybe we should orson it. <laughs> I am well aware of the toil and blood and treasure it will cost us to maintain this declaration and to support and defend these states. Uh, yet, through all the gloom, I see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is worth all the means. This <laughs> is our day of deliverance. John Adams. Uh, 